I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. One of the things we love about our digital tools is the way they often make things so easy, frictionless, as the tech companies say. A simple couple of taps on your phone rather than making your way across town dealing with an in-person business. But is that ease always a good thing? We're living in a world where investment is a game and sports is a business. Anyone can place a bet or play the markets from the comfort of your smartphone apps, designed to be convenient, easy, and increasingly fun. So this time on Spark, online betting and gamifying finance. Yeah, you. Come a bit closer. We got a little poker game going on down here. You interested? If cards ain't your thing, we're also placing some bets on the ponies. It's all on the up and up. Promise. There was a time when gambling was a thing done behind closed doors, associated with ne'er-do-wells or charismatic hotshots, or both. Think James Caan in the 1974 movie The Gambler. Well, it's only insane if I lose, and I'm not going to lose. Or Kenny Rogers' hit song, The Gambler. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Sure, there are rules, regulations, what constitutes gambling, and where and for whom. How it should be advertised, if at all. These regulations vary from region to region, country to country. In Canada, it's up to the provinces to set regulations on marketing and advertising of gambling. Lately, there's been a lot of change. Because, like everything else, the world of gambling, particularly on sports teams, has moved online in a big, big way. I had some people say to me, if I don't place in a bet, it's not fun for me anymore. So we're like raising whole generations of young kids to see betting as an integral part of this excitement in professional sports. And that's a shame, in my opinion. This is Leah Nauer, a professor and the director of the Center for Gambling Studies at Rutgers University. In my generation and my daughter's generation, they were raised just really learning to appreciate sports for sports itself. That's the excitement is to watch your team, to hope they get a home run or a touchdown or whatever. Now there's this added amplified excitement point of having actual skin in the game in the form of your own money or a bet. So what do you see as the key differences between traditional sports betting and online sports betting? Well, the first difference is with traditional sports betting, there's there's a time lag. So, for example, you pick pick your teams, you pick your bets, you contact your bookie or you go to a casino. There's there's a time lag between when you're thinking about this and when you're placing your bet. In an online environment, it's instantaneous. I mean, you have you have the, the bookie in your pocket 24 hours a day, and you could pull it out 
and bet on whatever you want. And in most states in the United States, for example, you can bet during the game. You don't have to place the bets before the game. And from what I understand, you can also do sort of these side bets. Like it's not just betting on the outcome of the game. You might be betting on other sort of um, probability that something is going to happen within the game. Is that right? That's right. Prop bets. Yes, they're very popular. Futures, things like that. Yeah. And I think I can guess the answer to this question, but is one form of gambling more harmful than the other? I mean, in-game betting is is highly correlated with impulsive decision-making and, and not really thinking you're in the heat of the moment. And when you're in a hot state, you always make poor decisions compared to when you're in a cooler state. So I would say the in-game betting and parlays tend to lose most of the time. I mean, when people hit a parlay, they tend to make more money. So they're appealing, but they're really hard to win. What's a parlay? Um, a parlays are where you have several legs. So, so you bet not just on the outcome of one game, but on three, four, five. Um, and people tend to like them, but they lose. Right. And what does the research say about how young people specifically are affected by online sports betting versus that regular gambling? So about nine in, in our jurisdiction, about 90% of the youngest group of bettors bet in game. And, um, we allow third-party payment mechanisms here, which I'm completely against, because those third-party payment mechanisms, for example, a popular one here is PayPal, they set up a wall between what people are able to spend and what operators or regulators can actually see. So they, they may have maxed out 10 cards, and nobody's going to know that. Right. So can you talk to me a bit more about what it is about online sports betting that makes it so appealing to to young people in a way that traditional bookie betting might not be? I think it's a lot of things. Number one, ads have just blanketed everybody's TV. In the US, it is so integrated now with sports. I mean, you can't watch a broadcast for like the World Series without, you know, seeing some gambling company etched on the pitcher's mound or the odds being talked about by the announcer. So it has just been fully integrated into sports for this youngest generation. I also think there's a there's a big peer-to-peer aspect. Younger people tend to really rely most on their peers. So they're doing it with their peers. They're engaged and that makes it more fun. Right, right. I'm also interested in the idea about sports betting in particular, that that betting on sports seems at least to be more about being knowledgeable about the game rather than just sort of blind luck. I mean, you know, there are people who study a lot of the mathematics behind it and can make more educated bets. No question about that. But for a majority of people, there's the emotion of team loyalty. There's all these things that mitigate against, you know, you having any kind of an edge. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about how compulsive gambling interacts with other forms of addiction and substance abuse issues? So about 50% of people who have problems with gambling have a comorbid other addiction. In our most recent prevalence study that we was just released a month ago, we found that those that bet on sports were much more likely than those who bet on a lot of other things they were more likely to bet across multiple activities. So not just on sports, they were more likely to bet in mixed venues, which is both in land-based and online environments. They were more likely to have higher rates of suicidality, emotional problems, and other addictive behaviors. 
do we have a sense of, I guess, what proportion of people who do sports betting are likely to become compulsive gamblers and what what percentage of people are just this is a you know fun little thing that that's an add-on you know once a week or something like that we don't have those kind of reliable statistics yet because in even in our study 40% of the people who bet on sports in our study did so illegally before it was legal so what we really want to know now is all this legalized expansion what effect is that having and so those people would have done it anyway. So we can't really tell from them. What we do know is that places that have more forms of legalized betting, particularly online and as well as land-based, tend to have higher rates of serious problems. In New Jersey, we're, we're just under 6%, whereas the national prevalence rate, although this was done a long time ago, is around 2%. Right. One of the things that I've noticed when I watch some sports is that there's a way in which it's not just advertising, it's the the betting seems to be sort of integrated into the actual editorial, right? Or the, the actual sports broadcasting in a certain way. Yeah, it's just glamorized across the board. And it's not, there's no recognition that this is every bit as dangerous for a small proportion of people as alcohol or drugs. Hmm. How concerned are you about all the newer companies that are trying to enter the online sports betting industry in the U.S.? Not very. (laughs) No? (laughs) No. I mean, there's always there's a flooding of the market at the beginning. And then there's like, you know, social Darwinism takes over and the the biggest companies kind of gobble up the the smaller ones and then it starts to weed them out. Mm hmm. In August, the province of Ontario banned the use of pro athletes to advertise and market online sports betting. How effective do you think this might be in reducing the appeal of gambling to to kids and teens? I don't know if it will reduce it, but I think it it is a very good move in that I, I think that is an appeal for kids. So I don't know that if you've already started betting, it's going to reduce anything. But I do think that you know, kids are not going to see their favorite sports figure. I mean, what hypocrisy. I say in the U.S., you know, we banned Pete Rose from the Hall of Fame and from baseball for gambling, and now people are getting paid way more than he ever bet to promote gambling Hmm. with the sanction of the professional teams. Yeah. So what would you like to see happen in the legislation around online betting? I think there needs to be a federal presence I don't care what country it is, there needs to be a federal regulatory agency. I mean, we have them for drugs, we have them for alcohol, we have them for tobacco, similar to what they have in the UK, that superimposes a standard, minimum standards framework across the country. That's the first thing that is absolutely critical. And then after that, I think we need to start regulating pieces of the gambling environment the same way that we do these other potentially addictive substances or behaviors and providing money for research and prevention and education and all of the things that we do for drugs and alcohol. And if you were the person coming up with those guardrails and recommendations, what would you suggest? How tightly would you like to see it controlled? Um, I think that you can superimpose a clear framework. Oh, please hire me. No, I'm kidding. I, I have lots of <laughs> ideas, but it would take way longer than you have. Um, <laughs> there's all different pieces that need to be put in place from advertising, which you already mentioned, to minimum responsible gambling safeguards and how they need to be rolled out. Because right now, in most places that I'm familiar with, 
even the states that are really more responsible, like New Jersey, they have regulation to to allow people to set their own limits, but operators can sort of bury it, minimize it. There's no standard language. I think all of this should be standardized. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you for having me. Leah Nauer is director of the Center for Gambling Studies at Rutgers University. Now, of course, plenty of people place bets on sports with no issues at all. It's just a fun pastime. But should there be limits on how sports betting can be marketed to people? Like, should online betting ads be popping up in the middle of a game on the family TV screen? Right now in Canada, a proposed national framework on advertising sports betting is making its way through the legislative process. I'm hopeful for this bill to be successful, that no matter where you live in this country, The reins will be pulled in so that the advertising is minimal. I'm Marty Deacon. I'm a senator in Canada, serving Ontario and the region of Waterloo. Senator Deacon introduced Bill S-269, which already passed first reading in June of 2023 and is currently in the second reading phase. I'm not getting rid of single sport betting. We're trying to pull the reins in on something. Would I like to ban it? That's a great conversation, but we've learned going into the um, introduction of this legislation is saying, what is the threshold? And we do have rules uh, in Canada for tobacco and alcohol and cannabis. And this would fit what we would call more the alcohol cannabis threshold. And so we've learned through a lot of courts with the work in tobacco that we would not probably reach that threshold. So what can we do? What we can do is develop this framework pull in some regulations that pulls the advertising right back. And you know Ontario's done some work. It's a good start. The Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario has outlined new restrictions effective February 28, 2024, stating that, quote, prohibiting the use of athletes and restricting celebrity endorsements would help safeguard children and youth who can be particularly susceptible to such advertising content, end quote. But Senator Deacon believes these regulations could go further and across the country. And the concern is the number, the frequency, the distraction, the invasion of ads on traditional media. And what we are learning is for some people at one end of the spectrum, it might be just annoying and could be distracting. But at the other end of the spectrum, it's very, very uh, negative on mental health. And particularly our young people who seem to be really drawn to these ads, particularly when they have celebrities included. And so is it advertising per se or sort of specific ways that ads are marketing to people? Well, it's a good question. So the advertising per se or the advertising across the television in a family room that is repeated over and over again, that really draws and lures and is made to look very, very appealing and for some addictive. It's the way it's done. It's the frequency it's done. It's the subjects chosen. It's the timing of it. And it's also really no breaks. It can be during a game. It can be during the timeout when commentators are speaking. It can be uh, quite invasive in a number of ways. So what does the data show us about actual concrete harms in Canada from this kind of advertising? The concrete harms and the data that we're receiving and globally and and in Canada is the data around addiction and the data around people getting drawn in. Some may be vulnerable 
already in the first place. Some may not be. And then it becomes an addiction like any other addiction we talk about, whether it's gambling, whether it's uh, alcohol, whether it's smoking, whether it's other medications, other addictions. And so it becomes that piece with proven case studies, proven stories, and high, high numbers. When we look at the data across Canada and in the UK and other places, uh, this type of advertising is showing us to be mostly annoying for adults, but addictive and a real draw for those folks who are sort of 8 to 25 years old. And that's where um, it's CAMH, the Canadian Mental Health Organization, and others are taking a close look at it and giving us the data that we need. Hmm. What do you make of Canada's decision to legalize single event sports betting in the first place? That uh, legalizing sport betting was a bill that was in process probably over eight years. And I voted for that bill. And I still believe up to this point that I am glad that I voted for the bill. And that was to bring and to solve a huge problem of billions and billions of dollars going into the dark, going to unregulated, going into some really questionable uh, situations and bringing it into Canada, regulating it in Canada and hoping to take the income from that for meaningful work in each province and territory. So do you think the act has been successful in regulating what was previously a banned activity? I think the act has been successful in the intent of the regulation of single sport betting for sure. And that's still a work in progress. I think the work of um, the revenue and how that's used in jurisdictions is still a work in progress. And I think this area you know what, as senators, we're, we have the job of doing sober second thought. We have a job of looking at bills and saying, did this make sense? Did we do our very best work? Was this rushed? Can we make it better? And that's why we're here right now. Now, if the government stepped in and said, uh, Senator Deacon, we have this and we're going to take over and we are going to develop a framework, I would step aside and say, please take this away. But right now, something must be done. But as far as I understand, the 2021 federal law allowed provinces and territories to regulate as they see fit. So why not leave it to the provinces instead of this kind of one-size-fits-all piece of legislation? Mm -hmm. You are right. When the single sport betting came out, it was for provinces, a provincial jurisdiction, a territorial jurisdiction. And uh, our goal is that we would like standardized across the country. Yeah. Do you think there are things that Canada can learn from the UK, Germany and Belgium about how to legislate online sports betting? Yeah, UK, Belgium, and some other countries, of course, were ahead of us in legalizing and ahead of us with this advertising challenge. And one of the really big positive things about this is we can learn from them and learn from them quickly. Sure, we have data collected across the country already on the damage this is doing. We have that. We can talk to the medical practitioners. They have incredible data that they're working on and collecting, but we can actually learn from the countries who are much deeper in this hole who have come out with some really good rules and regulations that they have uh, put in place to circumvent this issue around advertising. And would be very smart for us to listen and to respond quickly uh, instead of waiting as long as they had to. You've been talking about this from your perspective as a senator, but you have a long history of high-level involvement in amateur sports. You're director of the Canadian Olympic Committee, to name just one of the hats you wear. How does that life experience shape how you think about this issue? 
My exposure globally has really been quite something. I have to say that I have seen what we would call match manipulation, uh, match fixing, and that has a very direct connotation relationship with advertising and with the grooming of athletes and coaches. I've seen the most vulnerable and uh, uh, young athletes not even knowing that they become the subject of bets and betting that has really uh, taken off. I also um, am really thrilled that the International Olympic Committee and international sports are taking a serious look at uh, online advertising. They're taking a serious look at match manipulation. This is all connected uh, in cleaning up and making sure that we are back to doing sport for the right values. Thanks so much for your thoughts on this today. You're welcome. And thank you. It's a pleasure, a pleasure seeing you in person. (laughs) Marty Deacon is a Canadian senator serving Ontario. As she said, part of the motivation behind regulation comes from a desire to return to the pureness of sport. Same question to Bruce Kidd. Sport as a character builder? Well, I don't know. I think myself it, it has uh, been a character builder for me. Uh, Canadian track and field sensation Bruce Kidd at just 19 years old, speaking to the CBC from the track at the University of Toronto, where he was training for the 1964 Olympics. Today, he's the university's sports and public policy professor emeritus, a member of the Order of Canada, a member of the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame, and creator of the campaign Ban Ads for Gambling. I'm opposed to gambling in sports and particularly the emphasis uh, of the ads on sports betting because it disembodies what we mean by sports. Sport is uh, physical. Sport involves uh, interaction with other people and it involves all kinds of cultural um, messages both within the context of the game and in terms of the presentation or the symbolism of what sports means. Reducing sport to this little manipulation of a screen, I think, uh, is dangerous. And then, of course, it leads to a ton of health-related harms. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your campaign. What do you hope to accomplish when it comes to regulating online sports betting in Canada? Well, ideally, Parliament will ban ads for gambling in the same way it banned ads for tobacco and for cannabis. And largely for the same health reasons, those ads groom uh, children, youth, and and vulnerable people into uh, a lifetime of engaging in sport on their phones. And uh, a percentage of them, albeit a small percentage of them, become addicted and uh, and run into endless problems, all of which have been documented in other countries where sports ads for, for betting have uh, been commonplace for many years. And I understand that you're not an advocate for recriminalizing sports betting. Why not? Well, that's a compromise for me, but we, we realize that having gambling regulated uh, out of the black market is better than it being entirely offshore and uh, and entirely in a kind of gray world. Hmm. How concerned are you that sports betting might exacerbate match fixing? Well, that's a concern. It's not first and foremost for us, but there are lots of people from the IOC 
to the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport uh, who are concerned about match fixing and game manipulation. And if you look at what's happening in the United States, uh, there are news reports again and again of coaches and referees and athletes uh, being found out for uh, manipulating the outcome of games. Uh, there are people who've spent a lot of time researching this, and they say it's commonplace and that we in Canada are naive not to give greater attention to uh, instances of, of game manipulation. Hmm. I just want to return to where we started with this idea of the distinction between this kind of holistic embodied sense of sport and the sort of piecemeal kind of nature of betting. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, somebody said the other day that if uh, there are 300, 350 pitches in a nine-inning game of baseball, there are 300, 350 opportunities for someone to bet in a game. Mm. And uh, that takes uh, a micro part of the holistic, comprehensive, dynamic activity of a sport, uh, and it uh, reduces it to one simple calculation. Some of those calculations are related to players and referee performance, and uh, bettors put a lot of pressure on those players and referees to perform in a particular way. And when their outcomes, the bettors' outcomes, are not achieved, they abuse those, those participants sometimes in racist terms, as has been widely reported uh, in the Canadian media uh, because of the concerns of, of Raptors players who begun to complain about this. And it, it, it distorts what games are all about. And in one now notorious case, the Toronto Raptor Chris Boucher uh, faked a three uh, and if he had achieved that three, he would have got what uh, the odds said should be his total for the game. Instead, he passed it to a teammate who made a layup, which won the Raptors the game, but he didn't achieve uh, the 10-point uh, total that the Gamblers had set up. And he was excoriated in abusive, racist language for not making that prop bet but winning the game. That's how sports are poisoned by this micro-betting that's become a part of the game. Bruce, thanks so much for your insights on this. Okay, Nora. Canadian Olympian Bruce Kidd is a professor emeritus of sports and public policy at the University of Toronto and one of the organizers behind the campaign BanAdsForGambling.ca. CBC News reached out to the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario in March after Raptor player Chris Boucher and former Raptor Fred Van Vliet spoke out about the abusive messages they'd received from bettors. A spokesperson for the commission said in a statement it was, quote, appalled by such acts, adding that those incidents fall outside regulatory authority and are police matters. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. 
Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. And so far today, we've been looking at sports betting apps and the potential harms of advertising these services. But there's another type of service involving risk and choice that's exploded in popularity and is being advertised heavily to younger adults. Gamified investing. A few simple taps on your phone and your trading, moving up an animated leaderboard, getting badges or being showered with confetti. Except this isn't your Spanish lesson. It's the stock market. Investing should not be daunting, should not be scary. On the other hand, I don't think investment should be too fun. This is Marius Zoykan. He's an assistant professor of finance at the University of Toronto. He studies the impact of technology on trading, securities exchanges, and asset management. The wave of new fintech tools makes it easier to invest, and that can be a good thing, democratizing financial literacy. But they don't just make it easy, they make it fun. And by turning trading into a game, more rookie investors are signing up to play the market. Platforms like TD Ameritrade or Simple kept on cutting fees to attract investors, and they reached basically almost zero fees. So they needed something else to differentiate from, from, from the others. And that's why I decided, well, you know, we should make trading more fun. So what are some of the techniques that these platforms are using to kind of attract and engage investors? I think there are, there are three main categories of elements that they mix and match. On the one hand, there are what we like to call hedonic gamification, which is simply fun elements like, for example, confetti popping down on the screen uh, after you execute a trade or achievement badges for you know, spending a certain amount of time on the platform mm. or, you know, a status for, for executing a number of trades. There are also social elements. There are platforms like eToro, for example, who do that, will allow you to post your trading strategy for others to see and follow and like. And this gives you some sort of street cred on the platform and, you know, the reward of like being a leader of the community. And finally, there are this informational type of gamification elements, which are price notifications. Well, they, you know, tell you with quite high frequency, they could tell you, they could give you notifications every couple of minutes that the particular stock is going up. So it's creating this fear of missing out or that the stock is going down. So you're, you might want to remove it from your, from your portfolio. And so these are just sort of constantly popping up on your phone as you're yes. whatever, supposed to be doing something else, basically. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they, they try to bring your attention always to the app, always to the platform. You can turn them off, I think, in the app, but the default is that they should be there. They should make you engage with the app. Yeah. So for someone who's never invested online, how does the trading experience on one of these uh, gamified apps compare to that of a sort of more standard or traditional platform? It's definitely more uh, enticing and more fun to start trading on one of these apps, right? A lot of young people are are digital natives. They spend, we spend a lot of time on our, on our phones and iPads. So 
having a, another app that just allows you to access the market and feel like you know the wolf of Wall Street, uh, it's 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 always a, it's always a, a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know if you're sitting down in front of your computer or even even further if you're going to talk to your to your broker or financial advisor. Deals feels a lot like, you know, a chore, like adult work. I'm, I'm actually sitting down and thinking <laughs> yes. about my money rather than just buying and selling and having this instant rush when I make you know, a couple of dollars in, in profits. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a bit more about that? I know there was a study out of Germany that showed that when people are trading on their phones in particular, they tend to make worse trades and take more risks. Why is that, do you think? I think when, when people are are in front of their phones or, or, or their tablets. They are, you know, in, in the time off type of mentality. Like you're not, you're not at work. You're not in your office. You're not in front. You're not at the desk. You're on your phone. You might be, you know, watching Netflix, uh, at the same time and keep on trading. Whereas when you are, you know, in front of a computer and you're with your financial advisor, you're, you're taking things a little bit more seriously. And what about you? Like, do you, do you like using these kinds of gamified investment tools? Um, I don't necessarily prefer them. Okay. And in truth, the, the, you know, the Canadian investment apps are not as gamified as, as the ones in the, in the US. I think I would go for you know, the one that has the, fewest level of commission for whatever trading strategy or whatever instruments I want to hold in my uh, portfolio. Mm-hmm. I, I was never particularly swayed by, by confetti falling down. <laughs> <laughs> so how powerful is gamification when it comes to generating trading volume? It's, it is powerful. But I think what's an even more important factor, and that's what we find in, in our research, is that there are different kind of people that choose to be on gamified platforms versus non-gamified platforms. Overall, you will see a pretty large difference in volumes if you look at how people trade on platforms like Robinhood versus more, more traditional ones. But a lot of this difference is their clientele, is who chooses to be on Robinhood. Uh, I think like 70% of the effect will be the clientele and 30% of the effect will be the actual impact of the, you know, the gamification strategies, the user design. So let's dig into some of the details of this study that you you did on uh, trading gamification and investor behavior. So first of all, how did you go about conducting the research? So what we did with uh, with my co-authors, uh, Mariana Kapov also from U of T and uh, Philip Chapkowski from, from Bonn, from Germany, we built a large-scale online experiment. Uh, so what we did, we created two trading platforms. One of them, it's a very simple plain vanilla platform. You can just buy and sell stocks with no gamification elements. And we built two flavors of game- gamified platforms. One that had all these confetti and achievement <laughs> badges. Yeah. So elements that we felt are fun and they will increase engagement, but do not contain any sort of information about what the stock price should be. Okay. And a gamified platform where we don't have the confetti, but we have a lot of price notifications, right? We, we tell people, hey, this stock is going up, this company is going down. Uh, and then we had the same people trading on both. And, uh, and see how their behavior differs. So we, in our mind, because, you know, we, we, we control how the stock price behaves and we tell people 
the basic of the process. There is an optimal strategy. There is an optimal trading strategy. And we can measure, we can precisely measure how people uh, make mistakes and what kind of mistakes they make on gamified versus non-gamified platforms and, and we can capture the impact. Okay. And so what did you learn? Uh, so what we learned is that gamification actually boosts engagement with the platform by about five, six percent, which is not a lot. But a lot of this difference comes from different clientels. So people who are more likely to trade, people that are very inclined to trade a lot, they self-select into choosing this, this gamified platforms. Okay. So these are people that are typically skew younger and typically have low financial literacy. So we also administer them like a financial literacy quiz. And the people who choose a gamified platform, they typically score less on this, on this quiz. And another thing that we learned is that people make different kind of mistakes on gamified platforms. Hmm. So, you know, generally, and this is a, you know, very long standing result in like behavioral finance. When investing, uh, retail traders are subject to something called a disposition effect. Okay. What's that? So a disposition effect means if I have a stock that's been losing money for a while, I don't really want to sell it because I'm always betting that it will go up again. And if I sell it, I'm realizing the loss. And on the other hand, if I have a stock that's been doing well, and maybe I should sell it and realize the loss, I'm, I'm trying to sell it too early and not just, just keep it in my, in my portfolio. Uh, so these are very persistent mistakes that we see in our data. So when we are introducing gamification, we see that people trade more randomly. Huh. So they make less of these very psychological mistakes this, this bias, but they have more noise. So it's, you know, depending what you want. Do you want people to make more mistakes that we know about, or do you want to people trade more random? In the end, there's not a clear effect which will dominate. And finally, we learn one more thing. We learn how people react to notifications. So we find that there's a big difference between people who, between traders who understand, people who understand the, the underlying process, and they're close to the optimal strategy to begin with, and people who have a very biased view of what the stock price should be. For people who are correct about the stock price, uh, having these notifications helps them stay closer to the, to the, to the true path. So they have the correct view. They might make mistakes. They see the notifications. They think, well, you know, that's right. Maybe that's what I should do. And that brings them closer to the correct trading uh, path. For people that have the wrong beliefs, when they see these notifications, it reinforces their wrong belief. Oh. They trade even worse. <laughs> oh. So notifications are good if you know what you're doing and if you have, you know, high level of financial literacy. Notification can uh, make you stuck in your mistakes if, if you're, if you're like, a, like a novice at trading to begin with. And they might actually make you lose money.
I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the advantages and downsides of gamified investment. Gamification is one technique that can be used to encourage engagement with a platform or service, but there are others. And that means designers of all kinds of digital services have ethical choices to make. In 2014, I spoke to Nir Eyal about his book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. So, you know, whenever we're changing user behavior, we, we have to be honest with ourselves that, that that's a form of manipulation. And I think it's something that we have to take very seriously as product designers, entrepreneurs, innovators, that, that we have to be very careful about how we apply this. Uh, and so the question isn't so much, can we build these habit-forming products? Can we build these potentially addictive products? The question now is, should we? turns out that as you know, quote-unquote bad as some of these products are in terms of how engaging they are and how potentially addictive they are, the percentage of the population that gets addicted, meaning they hurt themselves from going overboard with these behaviors and engaging with these products too much, mm-hmm. it's a very tiny percentage. But just because there's a small proportion of the population that goes too far doesn't mean we can ignore them. I actually am very hopeful that because these technologies are interactive because these companies actually know who's overusing the products, they can do something about it. Because remember, you know, addiction is nothing new. There's been all kinds of addictive products for millennia, right? That's not new to to humanity. But for the first time, these products know who's abusing. So if you were an alcohol distiller, you could throw up your hands and say, well, we don't know who the alcoholics are. How could we do anything about it? Because we have no idea who's abusing our product. Well, these companies know, right? Gaming companies know who's using their products and how much. So for the first time, they could step in and actually do something and say, you know what? That amount of use is too much. And they can moderate that use. Hmm. Nir Eyal speaking to me in 2014 about behavioral design and his book, Hooked. When it comes to gamified investment, the design choices may not affect all investors the same way. My guest right now is Marius Zoyken, Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Toronto. He says from his research, stock price notification can be good for some investors and not for others. I think beginner traders, younger traders who are just starting, they would on average not benefit from gamification. It will just make them trade more randomly and uh, react worse to, to, to price notifications. For people with, with already some trading experience, it will probably be beneficial. At least the price notification price could be beneficial. But another thing that, you know, if you, if you step back and we look at the bigger picture, gamified apps can attract a new wave of investors that might stay out of markets to begin. A lot of young people, you know, before the pandemic might have thought, you know, investing is not for me. It sounds complicated. It sounds like you need to know a lot of math. I I won't go into the markets at all. And that's a problem worldwide, that there's the stock market participation is limited. So gamified trading apps, because they try to make trading a little bit more fun, might help younger people to at least have some contact with the market. So meaning that they're... um it's sort of democratizing the process of investment in a way and giving people a bit of an on-ramp? Exactly. The big question is, will they accumulate experience enough, fast enough to become immune to this gamification strategies and then graduate to another level? Or will their losses sort of like completely, completely eat up their wealth before that happens? Do you think there are ways that we might go about optimizing some of those benefits, some of that way that it helps younger investors kind of get into the market? I think 
the the biggest policy that we can have is to work to improve uh, young people's financial literacy, to tell them what kind of strategies are safe on the stock market, uh, and teaching them the importance of diversification, informing them about these behavioral biases on so the back of their mind. They know that it's it's not it's not very good to keep on a losing stock in the in the hopes that it will it will might, might bounce back. I think that will do a great a great amount of good. It's difficult to tell these apps exactly how to design their user experience, and and there are so many loopholes. For example, back in 2020, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts created this action, this legal action against Robinhood for the confetti, for these behavioral prompts. Specifically about the confetti? Specifically about the confetti, or that was like one big item in there. What Robinhood did, they removed the confetti and they replaced them with falling geometric shapes. <laughs> so instead of, you know, had triangles, circles falling down. Right. <laughs> so it's it's hard to target one particular item because, you know, there's so... They're, they're, there's so much creativity in this field. You can always get around regulation. And and it's probably not the best to make everything confined and limited and not appealing to a broad category. Mm-hmm. What we can do is try to make people understand and see through these, through these devices. Yeah. So if in the big picture, democratizing access to financial markets is, is an upside, what about some of the downsides or potential harms? Uh, the biggest potential harm is people taking on more risk than they're than they're than they're prepared to, uh, because you know gamified investment and investment on your phone looks so much like a game. Traders might be inclined to you know to just to just play the game and without having at the back of their mind that that's his actual money. Uh, they might also be inclined to trade on margin, which is essentially borrowing money for the from the trading app. And then playing the game with the broker's money, uh, without necessarily realizing that this actually increases their risk 10, 100 times. These are things that are not immediately obvious. You're thinking when, especially when, when, when trading on margin, you're thinking, well, I can take one, my one dollar and trade 10. Uh, and I can, I can increase my profit 10 times, which, which sounds great. But then if, the stock price falls 10%, you're completely wiped out. Right. So the risk is 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 very high and is not immediately salient. And these the, the trading platforms that don't have an incentive to make it immediately salient. Nora Young, and right now on Spark, my guest is finance expert Marius Zoykan. He's one of the researchers of a study comparing how DIY investors behave on trading sites and apps with game-like design and incentives versus simple, more standard trading apps. At another point in the show, we were talking about online sports betting and how the ability to make these little quick bids on things at the spur of the moment might actually sort of trigger more compulsive behavior just because it's sort of you know, on the spur of the moment. Do you think that some of these things like the push notifications can encourage people to become compulsive about investing? Mm, I am uh, I'm not so pessimistic about this. 
if you if if you asked me this question two years ago or when we were at the height of of GameStop and and and, and meme stocks, uh, I would have perhaps been more worried. But since then, I think I think the the markets have calmed down quite a bit. And and even in our study, when when we ask people, well, do you think you if you have to choose again, if would you would you choose to trade on the gamify platforms? A lot of them said 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 no. Hmm. Um, so we don't see any necessarily any compulsive effect, but you know it could it could become a problem further down the line. Yeah. Last June, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission announced it would design new rules to quote crack down on behavioral prompts and trading gamification. What do you make of that strategy? Um, as I said, it's very difficult to impose a particular technology or a particular set of a particular user experience across platforms. Like at the end of the day, we want technology to to be a part of our markets. We want innovation and creativity to attract to attract new new customers. Uh, so I find that this is. This is a very difficult task. Even like defining and categorizing all the potential gamification elements, it's a, it's a moving target. Uh, what SEC did, and I think that's a step in the good direction, is to have this program to improve financial literacy. They even have ads that resemble a game show where they ask people questions about you know financial financial literacy or from the from the world of stock markets uh, which I think you know it's a good and fun idea to bring people closer and to understand the to understand the risks but as, as far as I know there's no yet very clear policy about what you can do to, to prevent gamification mm-hmm. what do you think might be the best way forward in Canada when it comes to regulation should we try to regulate it given the complexity that you're talking about it's good to inform people, increase financial literacy. And there is one fundamental difference between Canada and the U.S. that I think Canada has, has nailed down pretty well. The reason why in the U.S. these apps like Robinhood uh, grew so big is because in the U.S. Uh, there is this possibility for payment for order flow. What's that? So with payment for order flow, if, if I'm a retail trader, if I'm submitting an order to, to, to Robinhood. What Robinhood does is not take my order and send it to NYSE or NASDAQ, uh, which is you know what you might think, that they're just a window for you to the market. What they would do is take this order and sell it for, for a rebate to a large hedge fund. Okay. Somebody like, like, like for example, Citadel or Virtue. And, and Citadel and Virtue love these orders because they come from retail traders from people like me and you who don't have a comparative advantage in markets. They don't know more than them about the company. So it's what they call uninformed trader flow. So they're happy to match buyers and sellers and they want to have a lot of volume. So then Robinhood's claim or Robinhood's incentive is to generate a lot of volume by having people interact with the markets a lot and trade on their platform a lot. And in Canada, we don't have payment for order flow. So these orders, orders that are executed in Canada, on Canadian markets and Canadian stocks, they are sent directly to the market. Of course, if, if I'm a Canadian investor and I'm trading in the U.S. stocks, I would still 
that, that Canadian apps might still benefit from, from the rebate from the U.S. hedge funds. But the problem is more limited because Canada does not allow this in, on their own markets. So there's not this big incentive, oh, we need to trade a lot right. to make these hedge funds happy. I see. And how, what, what's the advantage to the hedge funds of doing this? Uh, the advantage of hedge funds, they get volume and they don't have to interact with other big players, right? If the hedge funds will provide, will, will try to provide liquidity on NYC and NASDAQ, they don't know who's coming to them. Is it near you or is another big fish in the market who might actually have some juicy private information that they don't know about and they might make a loss? But by siphoning order directly from, uh, from, from Robinhood, they know that they not, they're trading with the, someone like me, the, basically. The, yeah. the small, the small fish. Yeah. And, and the thing is that on, on average, this is make, this is making the markets or could make the markets worse. Because if all the, uh, retail order flow, all the order flow from, 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 from regular retail investors, Goes to wholesalers, like to, to hedge funds, like 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 Citadel and, and and Virtue. What's left on the markets, on the actual stock exchanges, is more toxic order flow. It's order flow that comes from the really informed traders. So then, liquidity there will be worse. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So and just finally, if there are any sort of rookie investors listening to this, thinking about clicking on an ad for an investing app or finally getting into the market, what would be your advice for them? By all means, get into the market, but see through all these sales tactics. I understand that, you know, the confettis and the notifications are there to edge, edge you to trade. Uh, sometimes the best strategy is keep your money in diversified fund, in diversified index funds and don't look at them and don't engage with the trading platform. It's set it and forget it. And if you want to gamble, keep it keep it small, small fish, very limited amount of your portfolio. But by all means, markets should not be daunting. And I think if there's one thing that these gamified platforms are doing well, it's, it's this. Good advice. Thank you so much for your insights on this. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Marius Zoykan is an assistant professor of finance at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and the Rotman School of Management. We reached out to Robinhood for a comment on the Massachusetts lawsuit that led the company to remove the confetti feature from its trading app. A Robinhood spokesperson said in a statement, quote, Investing isn't a game, but it shouldn't be grim and difficult to understand. We pride ourselves on meeting our customers wherever they are in their investing journey, many engaging with the markets for the first time. Our customer-centric design and approachable educational materials have made the platform informative and easy to use for a new generation of mobile-first investors, end quote. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, Megan Cardi, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young. And by Leah Naur, Senator Marty Deacon, Bruce Kidd, and Marius Zoykan. And for the Spark archives, Nia Regal. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.